Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the think tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode of City Talks. Today, my guest is Brian Groom. Brian is many things, including a former journalist at the Financial Times and a former editor at Scotland on Sunday. But for the purposes of today, he is the author of a fantastic new book, Northerners, A History from the Ice Age to the Present Day. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Andrew. Now, for most of the conversation, we'll probably end up focusing in and around the Industrial Revolution, what was happening in the North during that sort of period, and then obviously reflections, which you write about uh, afterwards. But I suppose my first question is, um, why this book? Uh, and why this style? Because I think the style is both chronological, in a sense, you go back to the Ice Age and bring us all the way to pretty much the present day, but you're also using a whole raft, uh, a huge number of individuals to tell tell the story of the evolution of the North. So why this book and why this style? Well, um, the book for me, it's, uh, as you know, I've um, spent most of my working life in and around uh, British and regional affairs, writing about them or editing them or things like that. Uh, as a kid, I was I was history mad. I went off it a bit when I was a teenager, but I've come back to it as I got a bit older, as people often do. So those two things came together in my head, and the the, the journalism journalism is really just kind of um, history in real time. So the the uh, it seems an obvious subject for me to look at. I first started thinking about it about ten years ago. And I was astonished to discover that it had only ever been done once before. There's only ever been one previous general history of the North published, and that was in 1990. And it was an old fashioned kind of book with lots of facts and figures, but no people and certainly no women in it. So, um, so I thought this is um, as a modern book, it'd be good to try and make it as people focused as I can. And what happened in the end as I, as I was writing it was I, I probably expected I mean, the idea was to do something that loosely followed the timeline, um, but had various digressions and social cultural themes as it went along. In the end, I found the narrative actually quite gripping. There's just lots of it. And it's really interesting. And it never get bits of it get told in different ways. But but nobody's pulled that whole narrative together in one thread. And it just turned out to be quite a compelling story. So there's probably more of a historical narrative than I originally set out to do. And it's a it's a. A real roller coaster narrative as well, isn't it? I think there's a there's a beauty to the story, which is a real rise and fall, and then rise and fall, and then you know that's almost a sort of a persistent theme through the through the history of how the the North, you know, was, is, and you know maybe will be as well. Yeah, that's certainly you do get that pattern. There are waves and patterns to it, and um, you start by looking at it over such a long time span, you start to see some of the patterns. There's some fascinating things, uh, like I was previously not that aware of the, the the kind of geographical influences in how the North developed, but for for most of its history before the Industrial Revolution, the, its geography was something of a handicap. The historians talk about a Jurassic divide in England. There's a ridge of Jurassic limestone that runs from Dorset up to the Yorkshire coast, and to the north and west of it, you tend to get some um, higher ground, thinner soils, harder rocks, suitable pastoral economies, suitable for raising sheep and things. And 
southeast of it, you tend to get um, richer farmland, uh, whole villages growing quickly on the whole wealthier. Uh, it's an oversimplification because you've got things like the Northumberland Plain and uh, the Vale of York in the north, but it certainly has had a, it's been a handicap for the north. But suddenly when, when we got to the Industrial Revolution, those geological factors went into reverse. Suddenly the things that were held, holding it back were useful. All the rain and the damp climate was great for, um, particularly for fine cotton, for uh, spinning and weaving fine cotton and wool. And it had sources of coal, it had rivers to drive water wheels and for transport, uh, easy sources of, um, of chemicals and iron. So all the things that had been holding back suddenly became great advantages. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think that the topography and the geography issue that you see play out, I think, is as you say, is fascinating the way initially it holds the place back. And actually, as a result of that, the area is massively underdeveloped and is relatively poor until pretty much the Industrial Revolution. And then, as you say, the, the geography becomes a, an att a big attribute as to why then the Industrial Revolution starts in the north and really, um, really kicks on. I think that is fascinating. The other thing I think... Um, in the book, which is really fascinating, something we think and talk a little bit about in, in at Centre for Cities is, you know, the history matters, path dependency. You know, one thing leads to another and leads to another. And whilst it's not deterministic, whatever the current is, it's always influenced by the, the distant past as well as the, you know, the recent past. Yeah, you see, we see echoes of current events in the past. The North often likes to think of itself as quite a radical region, and you did see particularly in the 19th century, a lot of radical movement, the great ferment of change. And you had the Chartists and the, um, the free trade movement and lots of, and then the later on the suffragettes. So it's used to thinking of itself as an area in the forefront of radical thought. But if you look at it over its history as a, as a whole, uh, particularly as it was an agricultural uh, region, it was fairly conservative and especially in religious matters. I point out in the book that the geography of the um, 17th century civil wars was oddly was quite similar in a way to that of the Brexit referendum in 2016. Though the latter was certainly less deadly than that. But you, the royalists in the 17th century have got the majority of their support from uh, the more conservative northern and western England, while Parliament got support from London, the southeast, and the emerging cities. Um, the issue is very different, obviously, and it's not a perfect parallel by any means. But that was what happened in the Brexit referendum. Brexit got most of its support the further from London you got, and um, Remainers were strongest in, in London, the cities in the southeast. Yeah, so yeah. it at least shows us that the, the kind of economic and cultural divide has certain recurring features to it. Yes, absolutely. Now, um, maybe this is a strange question to ask. Uh, someone who's just written uh, a book on the North. Um, but what struck me in, in the reading through the book, in, in some respects, is the, the variation on a whole range of different issues uh, that you could you see and witness across time, but also across uh, space or across place, you know, in the sense that Lancashire was quite different from Yorkshire, but Sheffield was quite different from Leeds and Leeds is quite different from Manchester and so on and so on. So I suppose, uh, and you will tell me yes, but does it make sense for us to think about the North as a, as a thing? And if it does, in, in what, how should we think about it, Brian? I mean, oh, and, and I guess, how does the North think about itself? 
Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, I think it's one reason you haven't seen many books of this kind about the North, and there aren't that many books about the North as a whole published, and when they are, they tend to be sort of quirky personal memoirs or things like that, and there is the question of how coherent a region the North is, um, but I think there are, there are kind of different levels of identity, um, so there are particularly strong local identity, often people's first identities with their city or town or county or sub-region. And you get particularly strong identities in the, the Northeast, on Merseyside and in Yorkshire, I'd suggest. And when people talk about the North, they often, it, it, it often gets defined in contradistinction to the South. It's when you're talking about England as a whole and how it fits into the whole of England often that you get that um, um, the thinking on a pan-northern basis. But I think it does exist, though. Um, it's quite a, a strong self-image that it has. It varies according to bits of the north, as you say. And um, there are lots of play, people live in one part. It's a big place. But people live in one part and never see another part of it. Um, but I think there is enough coherence to it for it to see itself as a whole. Yeah. I, I think you can definitely um, see that when you uh, on, and feel that when you're you're reading to it. Okay, so um, so we're going to focus on mainly the sort of industrial revolution sort of period, and then afterwards. But before we get on to that point, you highlight you know whilst we think about the industrial revolution as being the very pinnacle of the North, there were periods through that through the history that you're looking at where the North had you know had a more prominent position both within the UK, but actually beyond the UK as well. It was certainly European, if not uh, global in, in some respects. Just, just give us a, a sort of pen picture of when those times were during the, the periods that you were looking at. Yeah, I think there are, there are three important ones. Um, uh, firstly, under the Romans, um, the North uh, in the third century, I mean, there's some six or possibly seven Roman emperors visited Northern England while they were holding supreme power, partly because it was a vulnerable frontier region. So the first to come was Hadrian to start building his wall and a few others came for unsuccessful campaigns in Scotland. But it, it was an important and vulnerable frontier region. And in the third century, um, uh, Britannia was divided into two and Britannia, so-called Britannia Inferior covered um, Northern England down to just below Lincoln and um, Britannia Superior, which was so-called because it was geographically closer to Rome, uh, covered um, southern England and Wales. It was a very turbulent period in the empire. You had lots of soldier emperors and emperors didn't last all that long. And one consequence of that was that the whole, um, the, um, they focused the empire's resources on military spending. And the North was a military region, so it, um, it got quite a lot of investment during that period uh, at a time when Southern England, Britannia Superior, was, if anything, stagnating. Uh, the, the second period, I think, was and probably the North's most glorious period was the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Northumbria from the early 7th to the late 9th century. It's uh, one of several uh, big Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in England, and it came to, for a period of that, it dominated, or at least it kind of vied with Mercia for um, dominance over other kingdoms. And remarkably, it transformed itself in less than a century from a pagan illiterate society 
um, to probably Northern Europe's premier intellectual, Christian and artistic center. It's the age of Bede and Alcuin. It produced great art like the, and learning like the Lindisfarne Gospels and other similar books. Um, there were poets um, and it was, was on a, it was it was kind of on a on a cultural strand that went from Ireland through to Central Europe, and it was the pivotal part of that. So that and the North has, I think, never arguably had more political power than the North has ever held during that period, uh, and it certainly had greater autonomy than it has ever seen. So I think that's a really really important period. But it didn't last partly because these states were unstable. They weren't really kingdoms in any sense. They were warlords who uh, uh, they didn't have the institutions of a state to um, to survive. Uh, but the third period, it's um, a little harder to grasp in the middle of the Middle Ages. Uh, you saw th there was some economic progress for the North in the, in the sort of 12th and 13th century, especially in Yorkshire and the growth of the woolen industry. And then in the 14th and 15th centuries, uh, the North, or at least the nobles, the noble families, did very well out of the fact that wars were being fought against both Scotland and France. Uh, they provided a lot of the manpower for those wars, and they took a lot of the national budget. So families like the, um, the Percys and the Nevilles became very wealthy, very powerful, and all the people who worked for them did quite well as well. Ultimately, it was one, the cost of all this weakened the monarchy. So it's one cause of the, the Wars of the Roses. Uh, but those were the, I would say the three periods. And then it fell, fell behind during the late Middle Ages and into the Tudor period. And the Tudors were great centralizers. So uh, the North became a more difficult place then. And so that brings us to the Industrial Revolution, which as you say, <clears throat> rightly in the, in the book, yeah, almost exclusively takes place in the north, as it were, and certainly, or certainly starts when the significant developments happen in the north. And obviously, that's a story about industrialization, mechanization associated with the production of different products, which we'll come on to in a second. But it's also uh, a part of urbanization as well, in a sense, the emergence of uh, our, our cities, or you know, Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds and the towns surrounding them, you know, that's very much the vehicle through which the industrial uh, revolution sort of happens, as it were. So we'll get to that in a second. But as the industrial revolution sort of starts to kick in in earnest, sort of what mid mid seventeen uh, mid eighteenth sort of centuries, seventeen hundreds mid, um, how should we think about the north at that point? How would we sort of how would you sort of characterize it in terms of level of industrial activity and or the way that settlements and the way people are living? Oh, well, there's variation. Um, I mean, Yorkshire was relatively one of the wealthier parts of the north and had been for a few hundred years. It was um, had good farmland uh, in the east of the, the county. Um, it was tied into the North Sea trading network uh, and the the Great North Road from London to Scotland and Carlisle went up through Doncaster and Yorkshire. And it had uh, a well-established woolen industry. It did reasonably well. Over the other side of the Pennines, uh, Lancashire was for centuries England's poorest county, or was only one of England's poorest counties. It was poor, sparsely populated, largely uncultivated uh, grass and mossland and, and woodland. 
Um, it, it went from, I think in the book, I gave the figure of 36th out of 39th wealthiest English county by tax data. And then by 1843, it was second. So its transformation is the, the biggest transformation by far. Uh, though you also see it to some extent in Teesside and um, Tyneside as well. They had a pretty, pretty startling rise, especially Middlesbrough. So you've got a, a, not just an agricultural, but an almost a largely, an almost empty Lancashire before the Industrial Revolution came along. Then suddenly this massive wave of people and development um, all happening in a very short space of time. It was both, uh, I think, it seemed exhilarating and horrific in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the quotations and the, the uh, about, you know, writers at the time I think referring to Manchester as Hades on Earth or some, uh, some yeah the some new very... the new Hades it was called yes, it, yes. and you're right for Engels called it Hell on Earth yes <laughs> so there was definitely a sort of a, you know the negative aspects of massively rapid urbanisation in all its uh, in all its forms but there was a sort of counter a counter argument really about also that you know these were the places where modernity was emerging where opportunity was emerging as well there was a sort of is that fair to say as well? There was a, there was a sort of alternative view. Yeah, there was a there was a sense that it was it was uh, that I think people were aware that what was going on was a global experiment and something they'd not seen before. It's why you got so many um, international visitors to Manchester in the eighteen thirties and eighteen forties, just watching what was going to happen there because you had all these people thrown together and um, people at the time didn't didn't know whether all these things were going to lead to, um, uh, to prosperity or starvation. They just knew that absolutely huge changes were going, were going on. It happened against a pretty a, a background of considerable unrest as well from the 1790s onwards. And you had thing, well, you had um, explosive population growth. You had the Napoleonic Wars and their aftermath. And then, um, um, a volcano um, erupted in Indonesia in 1815 and its ash cloud went right across the world and it caused um, um, what was known as the year without summer uh, across Europe in, the, in 1816. Um, so there were food shortages going on at all this time as well. That was in the lead up to Peterloo and things like, things like that. So, um, so it was a tumultuous time and you saw all kinds of movements and ideas being thrown up. It was a, in many ways a very exciting time and, and, and for a region that had been previously written off as, as backward and of little consequence, it was suddenly suddenly starring in the key global event. It was quite yeah. something. I mean, you, you have I mean, the role of cities, as it were, or, or, you know, urban areas, not just individual cities, but groups of cities and and towns feature prominently in the Industrial Revolution story. How, how should we think about them, uh, Brian? How should we, should we think about them as sort of individualized almost city-states, you know, going back to 14th century Italy and all of that? Or should we think about them as being part of complicated networks of, you know, trading lines where products were moving backwards and forwards? Were they in competition with each other? Were they, were they not? I mean, how should we, how should we try to position the, the emergence of these places like Manchester and Leeds, but also Hull and you know Bradford, you talk about, but also the you know the Lancashire, the Lancashire towns as well. How do how should we how should we think about them? Well, they were both those things. Um, certainly, there was a a network. If you look at cotton, 
particularly around look around Manchester as a fulcrum, it, it, a system developed around it, and um, towns Manchester itself um, did a lot of spinning and weaving, particularly spinning early on. But it came to became to be the the um, the banking and and marketing centre for uh, the shop window for the cotton industry, and other towns developed specialisms and the around North Manchester, sort of Oldham and Bolton, it was spinning further north in and East Manchester, it tended to be different forms of weaving, um, not completely, but they, and they all kind of supplied each other. So they became into a sort of chain. And you see similar, similar chains around the woolen industry as well. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's always been a lot of competition between different parts of the North and um, rivalries have ebbed and flowed. Uh, the sharpest one in the Northwest certainly was that between Liverpool and Manchester, the kind of twin poles of, um, of, um, of the, the start of the Industrial Revolution. Liverpool regarded itself as the senior city in the um, early 19th century. The, uh, there used to be the phrase um, um, Liverpool gentlemen and Manchester men, meaning that the Liverpool had long-standing um, white-collar and professional employment in shipping and insurance and things like that. And when the railway opened, the, 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 um, the um, Liverpool to Manchester railway, there a lot of people in Liverpool were worried about, you're just going to let the hoi polloi in from Manchester. Um, <laughs> And then the, um, the the tables were turned later in the 19th century when um, the um, Manchester cotton merchants were so upset by the high charges that the um, the port owners were charging them in Liverpool that they decided to build their own canal wide enough for ocean going ships and built the, so they built the Manchester Ship Canal, uh, which became Britain's third largest port. So that's a quite a quite a rivalry going on there. And, and, that sparked, a, and that sparked traf, the, the, the emergence of Trafford Park, which then went did. on to be a yeah. huge industrial complex of, of industry and activities related to it. Yeah, at its peak by around the end of the first, Second World War, um, it was a, a huge, huge area for engineering. And, we've, um, and one of the most important um, 20th century um, industrial sites in the whole of Europe, I think. And what's your sense, you know, you, you talk about the sort of the emergence of these specialisations, almost, you know, locality by locality. And you see something similar when you compare, you know, what, how, how that played out in, say, between Bradford and Leeds, which seemed to specialise in different types of wool and uh, particular. Uh, and then obviously you've got, um, you've got uh, Sheffield focused in and around steel and then the, uh, the invention uh, albeit a bit with a bit of lack of stainless steel. I mean, how how do you have a sense of how this sort of specialization emerged? You know, there was the invisible hand was there, or was there a kind of guiding hand that 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 you know determined that some places would specialize in some things more than others? How would you describe it? Well, in some places, I guess the 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 nearness to particularly with iron and steel, the nearness to um to the the the, the raw resources mattered. Yeah. Uh, mattered too in the creation of the chemicals industry around southwest Lancashire, northwest Cheshire, all around the sort of Merseyside and River Mersey belt, because there's a lot of salt available there. Um, so it led to those kind of industries, and 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 it was a useful and a necessary industry for textiles as well. So it spawned, it came on the back of the cotton industry. So some of it was purely geological. Uh, it's hard to think of anywhere that's um, 
establish an industry that had nothing to do with its its geographical position. Yes. Uh, but I guess some have managed to develop beyond that. I mean, Leeds developed both, um, um, went on beyond um, kind of pure woolen to uh, clothing industry and engineering as well. Um, and mentioned Liverpool, once you've got a commercial industries then you have options for producing professional various kinds of professional industries yeah. um though i think probably on that the north let its moments slip uh one thing i talk a bit about in the book is the um i cite medieval york and 19th century manchester as the only two cities since anglo-saxon winchester arguably that have channel uh, that have challenged the centrality of london yeah um and and for a while it was so, but they uh, there was a sense that the um, the cotton merchants and manufacturers of Manchester were really successful in their anti corn laws free trade campaign. Free trade became uh, England's um, established policy for nearly a nearly a century after after their victories in the early Victorian era. But there's a sense in which they their political influence didn't really last beyond that, and the North's political influence as a whole was muted after that point. Yeah, possibly because they were weren't really that political in the first place, and they were too busy making money to want to have an impact on on England's national politics. But I think what also happened was that as the as the Industrial Revolution progressed. And it started to move into white collar areas and needed banking and marketing services and other services. That's when London started to reassert itself as a white collar financial services center. And you saw that by the late 19th century, it became the global capital of the financial industry. And in a way, Manchester and other parts of the North have never been quite as influential again as they were in those early and mid parts of the Victorian era. No, I think that was one of the striking aspects of the, the book, which you say at one point, you know, which you just said there is the industrial and commercial might uh, of the North uh, and of the, the cities of the North is never matched by in, by in their sort of political might or their political influence. And, and you just said it's because in part they were practical men and they're probably mainly men at, at that point that were too interested in doing things and, and making money and being of practical orientation is that would you is that it do you think is there something else going on or are they are they being resisted one of the interesting themes in the book maybe this is part of it i don't know but is you know you talk talk about uh, and highlight the the north and the through the industrial revolution place you know place for outsiders and for radicals and for dissenters you know since those were Sort of resisting in some respects some form of establishment um, or conventional wisdom, uh, and you know I think that's an important kind of and the way that evolves. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to read too much into it, but I, I've been grappling with that this question for quite a long time. And so I, now I've got you. Now's your chance to give me give me your give me your view on it. Well, I think one of one of the um, reasons that the political influence wasn't sustained is that that uh, for a while you had a. a a temporary coming together of the more um, radical and laissez-faire elements of the ideas being thrown up. So if you take the, the Corn Laws, which were introduced at the end of, in 1815, the end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, because the Tory government feared that um, landowners were going to lose all their military contracts, they was trying to protect a large part of their constituency. 
um, but essentially it kept it meant that you couldn't import grain until um, the price reached starvation levels. And he's appalled both the radicals because um, people were poor and hungry. It was a key demand at Peterloo uh, was the end of the Corn Law. Um, and yet it was also the key demand for the, the merchants and manufacturers. They, they thought that it was basically making the price of labour more expensive. And they wanted to trade around the world, and they thought British goods would be too expensive if they have to if they have to pay wages uh, so that people can eat enough to pay the price for um, uh, protected um, grain prices. So they were they came to at it from a free market viewpoint, and for a while those two views came together. But uh, but much of the time they're in opposition. The um, the, the Whigs and Liberals were laissez faire. They didn't like um, regulation. They opposed the Factory Acts, which tried to bring some kind of um, health and safety standards to the, um, the factories, which in which we saw some dreadful conditions emerging in the Industrial Revolution. So the North has not always been able to speak with one voice on economic and political matters, which I guess is one factor that's held it back as a, a voice in the national debate. Yeah, and does that partly explain then the sort of reluctance and the, the slow moving towards the incorporation of and the establishment of, you know, institutions to deliver clean water or to, you know, to improve sanitation, which again in the book, you know, you highlight that, you know, there wasn't a kind of an immediate grasping of these sorts of issues, which you would, you would have typically thought given, you know, the conditions that these would have been paramount. Is that partly it? And you, you contrast it, albeit or brief, briefly, with maybe what was going on in Birmingham around the kind of municipal socialism at the time. But is that partly the explanation for that slow take up? I guess part of it, yes, you're, you're right that Birmingham kind of almost civic leadership kind of moved southward to Birmingham in the mid 19th century with Joe yeah. Chamberlain and the creation of municipal gas and water companies. And the, the northern cities were certainly slow to do that. The the, the merchants and manufacturers wanted to show that they weren't just money-making machines, but in many cases they focused on, um, on the cultural and architectural things. Um, so in Manchester there was the Art Treasures exhibition in 1857, probably the greatest art exhibition Europe has ever seen. It kind of said, look how, you know, we're, you know we, we, we can do this stuff as well as, um, as just make money. And all the great buildings, I cite the Leeds, Leeds Town Hall, one of the most magnificent town halls anywhere, built on a hugely grand scale in 1858. It almost bankrupted the city, um, but it became a model for, for similar buildings elsewhere in Britain and uh, elsewhere in the, the empire. I mean, people say, it's quite hard to prove this, but people say that uh, it was partly built on such a grand scale in order to outdo Bradford which had just built St George's Hall <laughs> and they did they did eventually kind of grab the get, get hold of the sanitation and health issues um but but only in the second half of the 19th century they were pretty slow to get hold of those yeah the sort of development continues apace and then you know late 1800s early 1900s things bring, begin to go awry and um you in some respects Think in the book i think you say you know the the steady flow or the exceptional flow of innovation and great minds and great ideas not quite almost sudden you know stops overnight but it's a pretty quick 
drying up of that next round of innovation, next round of invention, next round of creation. Why is that? I mean, why, what is it at about that point that just sees this flow of innovation just almost stop? Well, I think it's had been um, building up for a few decades, but it had been disguised uh, partly by the, the globalization of the late 19th century. Pretty much all the North industries were doing well out of global trade. They must have felt that world was going to go on forever. Um, and they, they kind of were aware on some level that some countries were starting to compete with them, in, on, but there was enough to go around. And so they were, a bit, they were slow to, to um, create vertically integrated firms, you know, to, so they had, you had lots of little businesses doing little bits of production. Um, it didn't, it, it wasn't creating the big firms that some other countries were developing, which took them through to, um, uh, from raw materials right through to finished goods. Uh, and um, they, they weren't adopting new, the new things like the Northrop looms in America used for weaving cotton. Uh, everyone thought the, the, um, the mules that have been developed in the Industrial Revolution were still the dominant ones, so they yeah. should be fine. And then came the First World War, was a bit of a watershed. Parts of the world, like India, got used to not getting supplies of, of cotton from Lancashire and began to think that um, they too can have their own cotton industry as they used to do in the pre-industrial days. And it all started falling apart quite rapidly. Almost in all, almost all these industries, if you look at the, um, the year of peak production, it's always around just before or during or around the First World War. And then it collapses spectacularly quickly afterwards. You get a very, very brief post-war boom. And then for, um, for Northern England, the, um, the early 20s recession was, was steeper, if anything, than, than the 1930s one. I mean, we, we focus on the Great Depression because uh, particularly because America had felt that very, very badly in other parts of the world. And the North did feel it, um, but it had been going on already. And it was a, so the interwar period was a pretty difficult time. Yes, and then obviously we, we we you know we arrive at the the Second World War, which you know, on the one hand provides I guess a demand for some of the product that is being still created in the North, you know, to service um, the British Army in different ways, whether it's shipbuilding on the you know in the Northeast or um, uh, fatigues and uniforms for the Army through you know through uh, the textile industries and such. Uh, but again, that's that, that almost kind of masks the the longer run decline of uh, of those industries because of changing in the way those industries are organised. Is that fair? It's true. Yes, I should say that the um, the interwar periods were not wholly bleak for the north. They was it was certainly it had unemployment rates double or treble those of the south of the Midlands and the southeast. Um, but it wasn't uniform everywhere. Um, for people in employment, they were seeing rising real wages, mm. extra holidays. Um, you were getting the growth of the cinema and leisure industries. Um, and we saw a lot of new suburbs growing up around the north. So it, it did share in, and, and the growth of white collar occupations and professional occupations was, was going on. So it's not a completely black and white picture, but you're right. The, um, um, the, the industries were inexorably falling behind. And again, the Second World War disguised it for a while. And then we got quite a big post-war boom in the 20 years, 20, 30 years after the, after the Second World War. 
and the North did share in that. A lot of places were doing well. I mean, I grew up in places where, you know, my generation was a, was a lot more prosperous than my parents and my grandparents' generations had been. But, um, but all this while, the old industries were falling further behind. Um, in the late 1950s, uh, Britain started importing cotton goods for the first time since the Industrial Revolution, which is a bit of a reversal. Mm. Uh, and then all those places, particularly, particularly those that have been wholly, wholly built around one part of the production process, many of the mill towns, um, started to feel that. And um, by, the, by the 1970s and 1980s, quite a few bits of the North were in pretty serious decline. And we see that, I mean, as you say, the, the industries are declining. Many of those industries are concentrated in certain places and uh, not exclusively, but our big cities, particularly Liverpool and Manchester and Leeds and, and Sheffield and Hull you know, and Newcastle are really struggling during that time. Really, the weight of the, their industrial legacy is, is bearing down on them quite significantly. Um, is it the weight of that legacy, do you think, Brian, that that didn't enable them to sort of cast off their, you know, their history and, and move into the new economy, which, as you say, you know, was happening in other places. Yes, it was happening in, you know, often in the Midlands or uh, down increasingly in the, the surrounding areas around London. But London obviously was, you know, beginning to, to recover as well. What, what is it about the, the big northern cities that it's only probably nowish in the last 10 years in some respects that they've really begun to, to make up some ground that they lost. Why is that? Is it the legacy? Is it the sort of their industrial revolution um, history where they, they came into being through that process? I guess it's largely that, and it's, it's not unique to Northern England. Um, in the 1980s, cities globally were in quite a difficult state. New York was in a particularly difficult state. Lots of American cities um, in the 80s. I got to visit Lowell in the early 1980s, another cotton center in Massachusetts, um, which was grappling with very, very similar problems. But, you know, the bigger they come, the harder they fall, I guess. And having been the first and most successful of the industrial areas, um, they just had harder to fall when things were in decline. And um, certainly around that time, the, things were pretty dire for the cities. And we, viewers, would have predicted even the, the kind of modest recovery we have had since then. We did, really didn't know where things were going to go. And in the role, of course, that we talked about at the beginning, uh, right, how should we think about the North now? I mean, where is it on the, on the right? Is it you know, on the way up? Is it over the top? Is it on the way down? I mean, how would you, how would you kind of describe the the current situation of, of the north you know, when you look at it over the the longer longer run and in part i suppose maybe again it's not a strong sense but there is a sort of slight melancholiness to the end of the book in my reading of it at least i mean maybe you weren't trying to convey this but a, a kind of musing as to whether the best days of the north are over which i'm sure they are they aren't but i don't know i mean where where would we where would you put it on the roller coaster currently <laughs> Stable but unsatisfactory, I think. Um, <laughs> it's um, the, um, I mean, the, it, it's been a very difficult hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> Just going through all the schemes since, um, uh, since Stanley Baldwin's Industrial Transference Board in 1928, hey. all the efforts that have been made 
to try to narrow the gap and stem the decline, it's um, makes it quite hard to be very optimistic. And if you look at the bold figures, what I cite in the book is a roughly the end of the First World War, the North accounted for roughly 30% of um, Britain's economy, and now it's about 20%. Um, it's 20% of a bigger economy, of course. And if you, you look at it, it's still a bigger economy than, say, Argentina or Belgium or Denmark or Sweden. So it's a it's a big place, and there's many successful places in it. But it's, um, uh, it's a mixed picture. You're seeing... Um, I mean, the, the, the optimistic thing has been... The recovery in the bigger cities started in Manchester and Leeds, but spreading to some of the other 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 big cities, which was not necessarily predictable 30 years ago. Yeah. It's far from complete. There are big areas of deprivation in all those cities, um, but it's certainly it, it, it's certainly an, an improvement. Uh, the big challenge now is and has been for some time to spread that to the former mill towns, the coalfield areas yeah. and the seaside towns. But I'm not completely. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not completely pessimistic about that. I mean, if you look at the history of all the schemes we've seen through over the previous decades, certainly the North suffered a lot from schemes that have chopped and changed and come and gone with every yeah. government and some within governments as well. Every time a prime minister changes, the policy changes. So you've seen some policies that have worked up to a point for a while, but haven't been uh, sustained long term. The, the city's recovery was based really, the start of it was some civic leaders in the 1980s deciding to embrace the business sector. And to an extent, also parts of, of central government coming on board. And I think if you look at any, any successful regeneration effort around the world, then you've got to have, the bedrock has got to be those things. The local politicians, the private sector, and central government all all working in harness to to make things happen. There's still got to there's still got to be a level of investment. There's still got to be the right kind of policies, and some areas are just really difficult to generate regenerate whatever almost whatever you do if they're completely in the wrong place. But um, I wouldn't say it's if it's it's not a completely bleak picture. And if you get the right decisions and um, and if people are able to look beyond the short-term political factors, then it's certainly possible that we can see a gradual employment an improvement in those parts of the North that haven't recovered so far. And how should we think about, as we look to the future, what's your sense? How should we think about, you know, the legacy of the Industrial Revolution? What should we, you know, it's clearly still a huge factor in the North's sort of psyche and how it thinks about itself and how it regards itself, how it talks about it itself. Um, but how should we how should we use it to, so we get the best out of it, you know, for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, or even 100 years, Brian? Do, yeah. what's, the, what's the way that we can get the best out of the Industrial Revolution for the, for the future? Well, certainly, um, as some of the Northern mayors have, have recently started saying, um, the North has to... Has to see um, the green economy as 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 a big strand of its future. If there are going to be green industries, then there can hardly be a bit of place for them to emerge in the north. And the north got to make sure it doesn't let sort of petty local rivalries get in the way of developing those those industries. 
Um, and it's got to find a way too. Of, I mean, we've seen the other big factor that drove the recovery in the cities was the expansion of higher education, which sucked in, which led to lots more young people going to university and higher education in those cities. And a lot of them stayed on and develop or developed businesses in those areas. So you've seen a growth of a kind of professional class and a, and a high, high technology competent class. But it's not really made the most of that so far. It needs to get all the elements together that are going to spread that. But it's it must be an ambition to be more than just a sort of big distribution park for internet shopping. Yes. Uh, which at its worst, <laughs> the, the modern North economy has tended to become. Yes, no, that, that is that is a very good um, point. And I suppose my my last question to you is a bit more of a of a personal one. I uh, really, uh, right? You know, you're you're of the north. I mean, in a sense, you're from the north. You were born and raised there. You left the north to to, to work, and now you've gone back there. And I think you you know you wrote this, the the majority of the book from that area. I mean, how has how has being a northerner affected? How has it played out for you? I mean, what, how do you see the world? Do you see the world differently as a result of that? What's the sort of reflections that you have as a as a northerner? Yeah, well, we, um, I mean, my wife and I decided to um, to head back to the north, partly when when um, I realised I was getting to the stage when I'd lived slightly longer in the south of England than I'd <laughs> ever lived in, in the north, and that just didn't feel right, really. <laughs> I thought it was... And I'd never, never really intended to move south in the first place. It just happened by just an opportunity came up. I was perfectly happy. I, I started in on a little local paper in Ghoul in what was then in Humberside, a small port town. I was expecting probably my next move would be to the Yorkshire Post or to another regional daily. Uh, but I suddenly, for, for quirky reasons, an opportunity came to go straight to the Financial Times. So that's that's where I went. Yes. So I was free, I was viewing the um, the north from a, a southern perspective for many years. Though I'd always had this strand of interest in in regional affairs, not just the north, but the whole of how the different parts of Britain cohere. And that that was what took me in mid career to. When I was in my early thirties, I left a, a good job as UK news editor at the FT. Um, to start up a new Sunday newspaper, which was pretty in Scotland, which was a difficult experience. But that was, again, part of that desire to see. I mean, nothing gave me greater pride than to create a new quality paper outside London. Yes. Um, and so that, that's always driven me quite a bit. So uh, it's a pleasure now to come back, and I've loved being back. I've been back since early 2015. It's really nice to be back. I don't feel any sense of northern superiority. I don't think it's a better place than anywhere else in the world, uh, but it's a good place and it, it's somewhere that I understand and love. So um, I'm pleased to try and do something for it. Wow, fantastic. Um, my guest today has been Brian Groom. Uh, Brian's book, Northerners a History, is available from all good outlets. I strongly encourage everyone, even though you listen to the podcast, and uh, there is so much in the book that you won't just read it once when you've got it. You'll probably be like me and you'll, you'll be on your sixth or seventh read and you'll still find something that you missed on the previous reads as well. So, Brian, thank you very much for being part of City Talks. Thank you much, Andrew. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you like what you heard. 
You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre4Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission and all rights are reserved.